As a matter of introduction, Barry Fisher, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate you being my guest on Speak to a Lawyer. Uh, nice to speak to a fellow Ontario lawyer and mediator. Uh, you have so much experience and I'm looking forward to getting into it. Uh, you literally wrote the book on employment law. I'm looking forward to discussing that, the wrongful dismissal database, your mediation experience. But I start by asking to go back to uh, even the late 70s, what prompted you to study law? You were called the bar in 1979. Um, a couple of things. First of all, I always liked arguing. Um, I always enjoyed that. When I was a kid, we used to have little mock trials. I, I loved Perry Mason. We watched Perry Mason, so I always wanted to imitate him. Mm -hmm. And I remember one day sitting in the, at McGill last year, and I was a major in anthropology. And I realized there was no way I wanted to be an anthropologist going out into places where they didn't have toilets and spending my life uh, sitting on the ground talking to uh, people. That wasn't what my choice was. And I was under the mistaken impression uh, living in Quebec that A, you had to know Latin to go to law school. And second of all, that you had to be really, really smart. Uh, so when I got over those two burdens, uh, I, that's why I decided to go to law school and, and loved it, frankly. I finally found myself. I was not an anthropologist. Nice. And and back then, um, I mean, you, you landed up, uh, tell us about your articling and your first couple of jobs. Were they always in employment law? Because you're the employment law guy these days you write about employment law that's that's your thing so how did that develop was that uh, always employment law or did you start no, in law school there was no employment law there was labor law uh, i took one course i didn't especially like it at all it was poorly taught and it seemed boring as hell uh, i actually thought i was going to be a tax lawyer so i articled at steichman elliott which was then steichman elliott or Bartson bowman one of the leading tax firms Right. And uh, I worked and I worked with uh, Hubert Steichman, um, the Steichman and Steichman Elliott, uh, but quickly discovered two things that um, I didn't want to spend my life helping rich people save money. And B, I wasn't smart enough. Uh, okay. the, the IQ level of tax lawyers is well beyond me. Their EQ level may not be very high, but their IQ is well beyond me. So I started working with a, uh, uh, a, uh, a uh, an associate. Ernie wrote that, um, and he was one of the first people to do employment law. And I just felt I, I could connect with the people. They weren't bankers, they weren't rich people, they were average people like my parents. And uh, I got in early on the ground floor and liked it. So. Well, so, I mean, employment law is a relatively new area of law. Can you tell us, first of all, what is employment law and, and how did it develop? Well, it, it used to, when I started, when I was called to the bar in 79, until sometime in the 80s, it was actually called master and servant law. So if you went to the uh, law library, you couldn't find anything under employment law. The leading text, you know, like Cheshire on contracts or something, it was some British thing, but it was on master and servant. Um, so it, in, in Canada, I would say it really took off around, started taking off around 1965, which is when the famous Bardall versus Globe and Mail decision came out, which was really the first articulation in Canada, at least, as to how to calculate reasonable notice. Uh, and employment law has many, many aspects to it now, especially now, but at, at its core, it's still the right of an employee to receive uh, termination uh, pay, severance pay. I use these terms. Uh, uh, colloquially, uh, upon termination. 
And that's really at the core of what most cases are about. And, and there's a distinction between labor law and employment law. What, what's the difference there? If, if labor, law, labor law is a term used in unionized environments. Employment law is the term used in non-unionized environments. Mm -hmm. so, there are crossover issues, like for instance, human rights law applies in both jurisdictions, in both areas, but there are very important distinctions. So but that's what the term two terms mean. No, so, so I'm not a, an employment lawyer yet at least, so I'm going to be asking maybe some basic questions, but also for the audience that may not know such things, I'm going to, I'm going to also ask some basic yeah, questions. I'm, I'm used to getting dumb questions that don't work there. <laughs> Fair enough. So, so some uh, call them employment lawyers or labor lawyers um, only specialize in the union side of things or the non-union side of things. Why is that? And again, what's the difference? Is there a, an expertise difference or what, practically speaking, why do some lawyers take on one and not the other? On the labor side, there's a very distinct uh, differential. Like there are union side labor lawyers and management side labor lawyers and never the twain shall meet. It's highly unusual. Uh, certainly in Ontario, in a very specialized bar to find anyone who would represent both unions and management in different situations. Um, it started off uh, probably ideological. When I started in the 80s and would go to labor meetings, it was very clear who, who was the Marxist and, and who was the, uh, the uh, ultra-capitalist. Uh, it's way less philosophical now but it, this, the distinction still exists in the, uh, in the labor environment. In the employment environment, it's less so. Uh, when I practiced as an employment lawyer, I was primarily plaintiff, but I also represented a number of defendants. And so it's more balanced in the, um, in the employment bar. Uh, the practical, one of the practical reasons is if you're gonna do both, you're gonna often have conflicts of interest. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, to be fair, uh, employers, you know, if, if, my, if my lawyer was uh, uh, representing my company on something, I'm not sure I'd be very happy to find out he just won a big case <clears throat> in, the, in, in the Superior Court uh, where a plaintiff got 24 months or something like that. So there's a little bit of political attachment still. Fair enough. So um, your, your database, wrongful dismissal da database is hugely influential. It's so, much, so to speak, the benchmark, the, the guide for lawyers uh, trying to determine how much um, their employee clients are eligible for. Can you talk us through how that came about and uh, you know, the, impl the implications, the effect of such a database? Sure, in the early 80s, <coughs> when I was a very young lawyer and I would be dealing with older lawyers and we'd be figuring out the notice period, they'd say, well, that's a 12 month case or so that's a nine month case. And I thought, all of these people are extremely thoughtful and I wanna be like them. So I started collecting, uh, I started reading all the cases I could and I started keeping track of them in a paper format with the Bardolph factors, the age, position, the years of service. Uh, and when a new case came up, I would literally flip through my little binder, which maybe had 50 cases in it to try to find the cases that were closest to mine. Uh, I kept on doing that. And then I came early on, I, I came across a, a, a database program called DBase 3 Plus, I think it was, which was, uh, and I'm not, I'm not computer illiterate, but I'm certainly not a, a computer tech, but I learned how to work with um, DBase 3 Plus, uh, which is a, uh, a data program. And I quickly realized I could have the computer doing the searching. 
So I started reading more and more cases. I hired my sister-in-law one summer to go back to 1965 and read every case. Now note, this would be an impossible task now because everything is on Canley, correct? But in the olden days, uh, unreported cases were unknown cases. So the law was only made by reported decisions. So I had my sister-in-law and, and me, we went through all the previous cases. This would have been about 1982 or so. Uh, and there was probably a couple hundred cases from Bardall forward. I put them all into this database and I just started using it myself. Uh, and then I gave a speech to uh, a group of lawyers about it. And uh, the, the Law Society approached me. At that time, computerized research was done through a, a Law Society organization called the Search Law, uh, because computer research was very difficult in those days. Um, and uh, I entered into a contract with Search Law, where, whereby they would, uh, lawyers would call up Search Law and say, I have a 55-year-old product manager with 12-year service. I would do the search, and they would go out. And a couple of years later, I sold that uh, uh, idea to uh, Carswells, who is still the publishers. I still do every single case. Every, every, every touch of the keyboard, every case is, is read and analyzed by me. Carswell is just the, the publisher. Well, there's, there's so much to unpack there. And, and what you just said uh, brought up so many questions for me. Um, I, I mean, maybe I'll start with um, why is there still litigation if the guidelines are so clear? Why, why is there so much gray area? Wouldn't it be more beneficial for people to just plug it in, get that number, and avoid all the litigation? Is there too much gray area in the law, too much room for uh, counsel to maneuver around these things and get either more or less severance for their clients? What's, what's with the variations there? One of the reasons I started the database was the hope that if there was greater access to precedence over time, there would be less uncertainty as to the notice periods, that there would be a common place where everyone would go. And if, if you've seen how my database works, I list all the cases that fit the criteria, but I clump them so that it basically is a bell curve. And I thought over time, the parameters of that bell curve would shrink, therefore the predictability of the notice period would, um, would increase. I've written many papers doing an analysis of it. Um, it has been somewhat successful in predicting notice periods for say people with 10 to 25 years. It's fairly easy to predict those. Uh, there's still a high level of unpredictability, especially for short service employees. Now who's to blame for that? It's the judiciary. It's as simple as that. They're the ones that set the notice periods. They're the ones that keep on saying again and again and again, every case is different. Well, I have a comment, your honor. They're not different, okay? This is something that takes place hundreds of thousands of times a year, they're not very much of a difference or it should be a difference without a distinction. The model I hoped it would come to would be something like family support, where yes, you can argue about the edges of it, but there's an understanding, in fact, it's statutory now, that there's a formula for it. So it's primarily the fact that judges just refuse, quite frankly, to follow precedent. Each, each case, they like to look at it individually. Howard Levitt, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, he wrote a book years ago. And at that time, he found 107 factors that affected the notice period. Well, there is nothing 
that has 107 factors. That's called random. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's probably been the greatest disappointment of my life uh, that it hasn't become. On the other hand, I keep on in business. Uh, they may well be a m economic motivation among the entire bar that if we made it simple, why would they need us? Uh, I even wrote a paper on it about 10 years ago proposing a, a simple, both statutory and common law way of, of uh, increasing certainty. And the paper went nowhere and probably wasn't read by anybody, so. It would be interesting if it gets in the statute, the Employment Standards Act, like you mentioned with the family support, get some sort of schedule with uh, a very easy to determine that would uh, make a lot of well, employment lawyers. proposal I had was I wanted to combine the ability to, to to negotiate with a, a statutory thing. So the, the idea I developed in this paper was that there would be a statutory uh, notice period. Uh, there would be three, it's a little complicated. There'd be the minimum levels under the Employment Standards Act. They would stay the same or whatever. Then there would be a standard formula, say a month a year for the sake of argument. But there would be the ability under certain ways of for the parties to contract out of the statutory minimum, out of the statutory standard, sorry. So this would combine uh, certainty with flexibility. So if the, if the parties wish to freely negotiate a greater benefit than the statute, they were free to do so. And if they negotiated a lesser benefit, uh, still above the floor of the employment standards that could be committed. And I developed this idea that there had to be full disclosure so you couldn't trick the employee. Basically, you would say the contract would have to say something like, "These are the standard terms uh, in the statute. We prefer to change these things. Do you agree?" Because part of the problem with contracts is people don't know. Employers will argue, "Well, they freely entered into this contract. They didn't freely enter the contract. They don't know anything." Uh, the whole essence of a contract is meeting of the minds. If parties don't know what the standard is, then how can they, how can you say you freely negotiated away from that standard? And trust me, 99.9% .9 of employees on hiring, and to be fair, probably 90% of employers on hiring have no clue what the law of wrongful dismissal is. So this myth that they're negotiating their own settlement uh, is, is a myth that continues to play out in employment law. Yeah, and as far as I've seen, there have been some uh, developments as of late with case law and I heard uh, recently Bill 24, I think, just got uh, introduced, which has some effects, but let's get there afterwards. I want to just slow down the middle and say, when you're in the 82, when you're developing this database, were you still at Steichman or at that point you went on your own oh, or somewhere I, else? Uh, I, uh, uh, my career came to a quick end at Steichman, so I was not asked back. So you were on your own from the get-go pretty much? Well, no, look, the Ernie Rovet, the gentleman I told you about, it was uh, what I called the loser's firm. Uh, two of the associates were not made partners, and I was not made uh, an associate. So we all left at the same time and started. Uh, I finished my articles, actually, at this new law firm, and then I became a, uh, an associate at that law firm. And that's when I started doing uh, primarily employment law. Well, very nice. Uh, only at a small-ish firm like that, you can have the flexibility and freedom to go and develop new things to innovate. Uh, right, right. Well, um, yes, yes. And certainly on the plaintiff side, Steigman's, when they did employment law, they were strictly uh, employer counsel. So, no, I, I often tell the story that uh, the three best things that ever happened to me were being rejected 
And one of the best rejections was not being asked back to Stipe and Elliot. Yeah, sometimes it just works out for the best. Definitely worked out for the best. And later, five years later, when I was not made a partner by Mr. Rovette, I was then forced to go out on my own or chose to go out on my own. And that was the second best uh, rejection that I ever got in my life. Right. It's the benefit of hindsight. Um, let me ask, practically speaking, and now this affects uh, all lawyers, not only employment law lawyers, but, but anyone. Um, I want to know what's the best way you keep up to date on cases? Uh, are you just sitting like Canley's your homepage, or is there any better way to to get up to date and up to speed on all the relevant cases that come out? Now you've got a lot of experience updating the database. How could uh, any any I mean, a states lawyer, real estate lawyer, any lawyer, how do they the best way to keep well, on top of cases? The way I do it is not available to other people. Uh, so let me explain how I do it, but then I can also explain how easy it is to do. Yes. Because I work with Carswell's uh, uh, Reuters, the uh, the largest legal publisher, I think, in the world. Um, they have scores of people who read every decision of every court through the land. And they have people that sort them out according to topics. So every week I get eight to 10 uh, cases directly from my publisher for me to review. So that's why I get my primary work. Um, I spend uh, too much time on LinkedIn, scanning other people's websites. And then I also encourage, and, and it, luckily I do get it, a lot of lawyers, with, when they win a case, they tend not to send me their losers. When they win a case, they'll send it to me because they know that A, I'll, if it's relevant, I'll include it in the database, and more importantly, I'll blog about it. So I, I have that. Now, if you don't have those access points, which most lawyers don't, the easy thing is to go on Canly and to set up a search. Uh, you can, I haven't done it. My son does it an automatic function that sues, as soon as it sees any case with the words wrongful dismissal, reasonable notice, you can key in whatever you want, you will get notification of those cases. So with the electronic world, it's so much easier to stay up to date. And yeah, I just read a lot of cases every day almost. Wow, amazing. Uh, that's what keeps you up to date and informed, informed of the law. Um, so the the book you mentioned is interesting the 80s sounds like an interesting time when you're just getting some experience and then i see from 1987 you're almost exclusively focused on mediation arbitration adr um you took the harvard course i actually took that course as well uh, over the summer really enjoyed it and uh, you know want to develop in that adr footsteps the mediation footsteps in one way or another but 87 was really early in that uh, in that sense it was uh, I don't know if it was mandatory back then, but even so, it was very underdeveloped, the mediation um, arena, if you will. So talk about how you got into that. How did you get into that exclusively even and uh, go through a bit of that development? Well, I actually got into arbitration before I got into mediation. So um, for a, as a labor, to become a labor arbitrator, you have to have experience in the area, but you also can't be partisan. So I was lucky enough that I did some labor law and I appeared before a tribunal whose name I can't even remember anymore uh, in front of Owen Scheim, who's still actually a very hardworking arbitrator. And I appeared before him and um, I guess I impressed him. At the time he was the chair of what's called the Grievance Settlement Board, which is the um, uh, statutory arbitration panel for disputes within the unionized public service. Uh, a little known board, but very busy because there are many, many employees of the Ontario Public Service and many of them filed many grievances. Uh, 
So one day I happened to be over at his offices and he saw me in the hallway and he said, hey, Barry, yes, Mr. Shine. He's still Mr. Shine to me, by the way. And, and he said, how would you like to be a, a vice chair of the uh, Grievance Settlement Board? And I immediately said, I would be honored. And then I ran back to my office and I said, what the hell is the Grievance Settlement Board? <laughs> so I looked into it and discovered it was this arbitration panel. So um, I was selected by, uh, he put me forth as a, nom as a nomination and I was accepted by both the employer and the major unions. And so I started doing arbitration. I still am on that tribunal. I'm the longest serving member of that tribunal. Uh, I've always been an impatient person. Uh, I like to get to the core of the problem and I like to resolve it. Um, and I always liked interventionist judges. When I did trials, I couldn't stand the granite judge who just sat there day after day listening to my boring submissions giving me no sense of where he was going. I preferred to engage in a discussion. So I adopted very quickly that form of arbitration, which at the time was radical because you were expected to sit there like a granite stone and absorb all this information and then write a decision. I, I rather engaged in, a, in what I called a conversation with counsel, <clears throat> a more interventionist model. Well, that, that led to the fact that led over time to develop into something called MedArb, which we didn't even have as a term back then, which was the arbitrator taking an active role in trying to resolve the dispute. Um, and I found that that was more satisfying. I was better at it. Uh, I didn't exactly like writing 40 page decisions on constitutional issues. Uh, I wanted to resolve the dispute. So that got me into, so I was doing arbitration and mediation at, at the same time in the same process. And then on the civil side, it didn't exist at all, quite frankly. So on the employment law, there was no mediation at all until uh, uh, a pilot project brought in by the, uh, uh, the ministry, uh, the attorney general in the, I think the mid nineties. What would everything litigate at that point? Um, Yes, but everything still litigates. Litigation is simply starting a claim. Right. Case is always resolved, okay? The number, mediation is not the panacea to reduce all trials. Lawyers have settled cases probably since the first lawyers existed. It's just, we did it in a different fashion. We would do it on the phone with each other. We do it at discoveries. We do it at the pretrial uh, and we do it without the involvement of a third party. Mediation just changed all that so that it's easier to talk through a third party. But lawyers have always resolved cases. Uh, it's just uh, mediation is a different method, arguably better, uh, more efficient and all that sort of stuff. So that's how I got into mediation. I was, I was actually, in the beginning, I thought mediation was for wimps. Only lousy lawyers needed mediation. And then I started attending mediations because I had to, and I loved it. Uh, and I was jealous of the person sitting at the end of the table. So I was lucky enough to, there weren't many mediators in those days, but I was lucky enough to latch on to a few. I learned early on to choose a few mediators that you worked well with, uh, as opposed to using a different mediator every time. And I basically pumped them from information. I'd, uh, we'd mediate the case and then I'd take them out for drinks and find, why'd you do this? Why'd you do that? Why'd you do this? Why'd you do that? And, uh, and then I took a bunch of courses, Harvard course and the Washington course and things like that. 
Nice. So you're saying you moved away from arbitration and more towards mediation these days, a couple of decades later, is it purely mediation or some? I don't know. I've always, I started off as, as a lawyer, then I was a lawyer and an arbitrator. Then I was a lawyer, an arbitrator and a mediator. And then I was, and then in 2000, I dropped the law, the law, the lawyering part. And so since 2000, I've been mediating and arbitrating, but mediation has always taken up the bulk of my time. Right. And then, you know, you don't just stop there as a mediator, arbitrator, you go ahead and write a book about it. So when, when did that come I wrote, about? I wrote, well, when people say I wrote a, I did write a book on mediation um, uh, in employment law. It, it was um, a vanity press, quite frankly. A friend of mine said he would put it together and he did it. It's, it's not my proudest achievement, quite frankly. Uh, it's not generally available. Uh, one of these days, perhaps I'll sit down and rewrite it. So. When people say I wrote the book, they're usually referring to the database. Right, right. Anyone even knows about the book. It's really just a collection of various articles about. It. Has it been helpful for your career for anything? No, no, no. no, I sold two copies, so it's not a big deal. <laughs> okay. Fair Part enough. of them, my parents. No, <laughs> it was, it was, it was an experiment, uh -huh. and uh, I just haven't had the time or the energy or the effort to try to really get it properly edited and published. Maybe one day, if anybody out there wants. If some aspiring young lawyer wants to have his name as a co-author, please give me a call. And I, would, I, I hate editing, so so I that's I, I goes back to my uh, impatience. I don't have the time and the energy, and it's hard to edit yourself because you think what you wrote was sacred, right? right. Uh, so it's I need somebody else to sit down and say this is garbage. You should organize this this way. I just haven't had around got around to doing it. So. Amazing. Okay, fair enough. We'll put that out there. Maybe you'll uh, get contacted. About yeah, seriously, as a young lawyer who wants, and I'll put his or her name right on the front. They have it first. I don't care. Yeah, fair enough. Again. So let's let's get into mediation a little bit. Uh, I mean, employment law is an interesting one because there's an imbalance of power. You got the big employer on the one hand. They got their uh, rules and whatever, and then you got the weak employee. So um, maybe go through, uh, generally speaking, the skills of a good mediator. That's that's what I'm interested in. Like you used to pick their brains of those mediators you, you attended with. That's what we're trying to do here. What really makes it uh, succeed a mediation? And, and just uh, follow up on that is do employment law files generally settle in mediation or, or you know, what kind of percentage of success is there? About 80 to 85% in my own personal uh, mediations. Other people are probably way less, but no, I'm kidding. Every mediator will tell you it's 80, 90%. The beauty of this is it's all confidential. We could be lying through it. Right. <laughs> generally speaking. First of all, your comment about the large oppressive employer against the little innocent employee, that definitely exists in many cases, but it's not complete. Uh, there are many, many small employers who the effect of one wrongful dismissal case can be devastating to them. And we've really seen that during the um, during the pandemic. I've had many small employers. Listen, employers have always cried wolf, right? There's never been a debtor in life. In, there's never been a debtor in the history of mankind who hasn't claimed I'm broke, I'm broke, I'm broke. Uh, this time it's true. So the one thing that's changed in the pandemic is many employers are suffering. So I just wanted to make that point. A small employer being faced with four or five wrongful dismissal cases, which may put the company under is probably more the victim than the four or five people who may have lost their jobs and found other jobs. So, but generally speaking, you're correct. That there's an imbalance of power. Yeah. Um, the, the beauty of the courts is uh, if 
you've got a good, you got a lawyer who knows what he's doing, knows how to handle the case correctly. It doesn't matter whether you're taking on SO, IBM, Toyota, whatever. Uh, if the lawyer knows how to handle the case correctly, the little Goliath or the big Goliath can be defeated by the David. It's mm -hmm. a biblical reference. Um, I would say that my, my the, the, the main tool that I, I bring a number of tools to the mediation table. And the first one is my knowledge of employment law and my willingness to use it. Um, there, there used to be a debate, and there still is occasionally in the mediation in the mediation community, as to whether or not evaluative mediation is appropriate. When I took my courses back in the '80s, that was horrible. God forbid the mediator should inject his or her opinion into the case. You're just there as a communicator and all this stuff. I realized that was not going to work. So I, I'm a highly evaluative mediator. In other words, I rely on people. People hire me because in part they want me to express my opinion as to how I think this might play out in court. So that's a first component of it. Uh, and I have various techniques in doing that. Employment law is off, employment litigation is often like what I call, like I call it an onion. In an onion, you've got a bunch of layers of crap on the top, which you have to peel off before you find the good, the core, right? Employment law is similar. You take a straightforward notice case and the plaintiff starts off by saying, well, I should get punitive damages and aggravated damages, mental distress. And then the employer says, oh yeah, well, I really fired you for cause and I have a counterclaim. You have all this garbage added on to the litigation. So then it comes to me and what I try to do is peel away the garbage. Okay, there's no really punitive damage claim. Let's not waste our time talking about that. There's no concept of near cause. So I don't care whether he was a good employee or not and focus on what the case is really about. So depending on how much crap the lawyers have piled on, I may spend some time getting rid of that or whatever, or find out that they really care about that one issue. So that, that's important. The other thing I think I bring to the table is, is a good understanding of what motivates people. Uh, and uh, my biggest regret about university is I should have taken less anthropology courses and more psychology courses. If I had my life to live over again, which I have no intention of doing, because I'm not a religious person, uh, I would have taken away, I would have majored in psychology. Uh, it is probably the more, and, and I spend a lot of my uh, spare time, if I'm not reading um, Tom Clancy novels, reading about psychology, especially um, uh, econo uh, the psychology of economics, how people make decisions. That's very important. So I study, I, I focus on that too. <clears throat> what sort of person do I have here? Do they, what do they really care about? What are their interests to use the term in psychological terms? Um, I'm also a, a big fan of uh, psychology, Daniel Kahneman's book, How to Make Decisions, such right. things. Um, is a, a more junior lawyer without the uh, more practical chops that you have knowing what's going to be with the court. First of all, I always tell clients, you never know what a court's going to decide. So it's interesting that you're going to come and I, say. I don't say that. I, I, I really don't like that statement. I think that makes it, I've heard lawyers say that all the time. It's a dart. It's a, it, if it really is throwing darts at a board or dice, well, then let's just call it that. It's not. I can't, if, if I actually believe that, then I'd give up. 
there is a logic to it. You can't predict exactly, but you can talk about re reasonable ranges. Mm -hmm. uh, so what I try to do in my mediation in the beginning is to get people to agree on what the likely range of outcome is, not the extremes. Again, we're back to that bell curve, right? Yeah. Did you read the book Black Swan by yes. some guy whose name I can't remember? The swans exist, but not in the real world. So I try to focus people on what the most likely outcome is, that middle range. Right. So statements like, oh, you get, you know, judges do whatever they want. I don't think that helps people. And then why should I settle? Mm -hmm. Why should I settle if this person is telling me that it's a crapshoot? I might as well go on a crapshoot. So I try to say no. I said, but, you know, some things are more predictable than others. There's a slight chance this swan might happen, but the overall tendency is it's not that's go i could take it back to the database the database doesn't tell you what the answer is it tells you what the more likely or most likely outcome is and that's really all we're ever trying to do as lawyers right this is the most likely outcome or that outcome that you desire is least likely okay fair enough people have a terrible the other thing i read about uh in in, in not just behavioral economics it's uh people's ability or inability to assess risk. We are terrible risk assessors. And you can see that during this pandemic stuff, you know, don't get me started on the anti-vaxxers, but that people's ability to overemphasize uh, extreme risks and underestimate uh, uh, common risks is, is well known in the literature. And that helps too, so. Yeah. I want to get there, the whole uh, vaccine employment law stuff in a minute. But before we go there, I just want to uh, follow up on this about psychology and say, if you have a, a, a psychologist who doesn't have much legal experience and a, a very knowledgeable employment law lawyer without much understanding of human nature, who would be a better mediator? You take the Nobel Prize winner, Daniel Kahneman, a famous psychologist, and you put him in a mediation room, would he do better than a lawyer without that understanding of people? you can get a person with both skills. Fair, fair that enough. Used to, that used to be the age old debated mediation. Do you want somebody who understands the process of mediation or do you want somebody who understands the legal analysis? And the answer is I want someone who knows both. Fair enough. And we have to develop both, both skills as lawyers, mediators, as a, you know, you can't have one without the other. Law is essentially, maybe not tax law, <laughs> but most law is human behavior and human understanding, both the parties and the judges. You know, good advocates know that, tell the story, make your client sound sympathetic, even if he's the worst piece of crap on the face of the earth. Um, so all that plays into a mediation. Mm, fair enough. So, I mean, this last uh, couple of years already uh, has brought so many changes to our life. Uh, one is remote work. We're doing this remotely, whereas a couple of years ago, it would have been great to do in person employment relationships are mostly remote people hire people without even meeting them and they do their work remotely what kind of impact people does that have people have been hired and fired without ever meeting their hired bar. and fired i guess fired is the more interesting part for you but uh, uh there was that nut bar in the us who fired 900 people on zoom did you read about that one the other day i, I did not know so so talk to us about the implications of of remote of virtual what kind of so even last week there was a an article in the paper how someone fell down their stairs at home and received yes. compensation for it. So go right. through the, the limits, the bell curve of uh, remote working, if you will. 
Well, from a mediation, let me start off with from the mediation point of view. From the mediation point of view, Zoom has been fantastic. If somebody would have told me on March 15, 2020, that I'd be spending my, that I would never have to drive downtown to Toronto and through the traffic and, 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 and that I could do a mediation on, on a computer, I'd say they were crazy. Um, but the world has completely changed and I don't think it's gonna go back. It has been a boom for, for mediators, quite frankly. Uh, I now have a uh, Ontario dominant practice by all means, but I have a, I'm starting to have a national practice now. I, I get, I get uh, uh, retained by Alberta Council, by British, uh, British Columbia Council. Um, so geography becomes irrelevant to the practice of mediation. Um, and mediators have, we very quickly understood that. Not only are we not spending time getting up, you know, five in the morning so you can catch a flight to Sudbury for the day, we just now wake up at 9.30 so we can do a mediation in Sudbury at 10. Um, it has, as I said, expanded everybody's practice so that geography doesn't matter. No longer, it used to be when you were choosing a mediator, if you were in Ottawa, you'd have a list of Ottawa mediators. If you were in Windsor, you'd have a list of Windsor mediators. Now it doesn't matter. You just choose the mediator that's uh, best for your case and it doesn't matter where he or she is sitting. And that's being remarkable. The ability to get decision makers to the table has been a dramatic difference too. Um, typically what would happen is very few companies in Canada are controlled by Canadians. We all know that. We have our American friends and our Swiss friends and our Chinese friends and our Japanese friends. And, and they would, I'm not gonna get a, a vice president uh, in Texas to fly up to Toronto for a $50,000 case. That's never gonna happen. He's gonna send some Canadian HR partner with absolutely no ability to do anything as a spokesperson. Now that Texas vice president can be on the phone because uh, he'll he or she will attend the mediation. So that's been a huge difference. There's no longer the excuse that I can't get hold of the boss because the boss can join. So now it's routine to, I had a case the other day where one of the lawyers was in the, the Caymans. Uh, the client was in Toronto. I think the employer was in Switzerland or something like that. It's, it's, it's been a sea change. The only thing you have to adjust to is the timing issues. So. You have to sort of compromise. So when I do a case out West, I can't expect them to get up at eight in the morning. So their morning case is my afternoon case, that sort of stuff. So it's been amazing. You can be anywhere and continue with the with the work. I'd, I'd expect you to be on a beach if that's the case, somewhere with a- Oh, I'm at my cottage. There you go, nice. So I, I work between my cottage uh, up in Muskoka and, and uh, my Toronto office. So someone said to me the other day, are you at home or at the office? I said, yes. <laughs> Very nice, that's right. I, I always, I love you, I say, these are the only shoes I've worn <laughs> in the last two years. That's amazing. It's incredible how we can continue to be productive, successful, all these things while, while sitting at home. I mean, I do miss a little bit the quote personal side, but not the personal side of the mediation. I miss the having a drink with a lawyer afterwards or something, but quite frankly, that's not worth having an office and driving downtown for. Right. I don't meet with people. But there was this conversation at the beginning, you're gonna miss all this personal stuff. That's not true at all. You and I are much closer now than we would be if it was in a boardroom. Typically, if I was in a boardroom, I would be at one end in the daddy seat, as I call it, 
the lawyers would be the next seats and the clients would be sitting farther away. I have less ability to see the client there than I would on Zoom. On Zoom, I can see, I can, I can Zoom right in. The other thing about Zoom is I'm seeing everybody's reaction at the same time. If you're in a board, if you're in a boardroom and someone's talking to you, you have to be looking at them. If you started looking away, that would be very impolite. So therefore I'm not seeing the reaction of other people, but on Zoom, I can look at everybody at the same time. So if you're the lawyer and you say something like stupid, <laughs> uh, I can see the client's reaction. And that's the, the sort of subtleties that a mediator looks for. And the other thing is <clears throat> I'm seeing myself and I'm able to uh, manipulate my, my face, my feelings more because I see what you're seeing, which you completely lose in a, in a boardroom meeting, right? I don't know what I look like. Fair I enough. Stare at myself all day. Yeah, so it's, it's nice to hear that there's, uh, there's, uh, the future is bright. Uh, I think on this one, and, and I'm a member of this uh, International Academy of Mediators, which is uh, uh, an international association of commercial mediators. And uh, we've done surveys and stuff, and everybody loves it. Everybody. The only, you know, the occasionally you'll get some client who says, well, I want to do a face-to-face. -face. And when you ask them why, they really don't even have an articulation anymore. Mm -hmm. I, I just don't see us going back. I call it going backwards. I'll do it. Once this pandemic is over, if people want, want to do it, I'll do it. But I just don't think it'll matter anymore. So it's a great time to be a lawyer, become a lawyer, very accessible. You know, it's uh, sky's the limit what we can do. Well, you know, it's funny about that. I thought about, first of all, whether this would help young mediators or hurt them. On the one hand, they have access to to the same platform that I have. On the other hand, it does favor the established right. uh, person. So it might actually be harder to break into mediation uh, because in the olden days, prior to March 20th, 2020, um, there's no way I would do a mediation in Thunder Bay, for instance, on a wrongful dismissal case. The, the financial impact would just be ridiculous. So there would be an opening for a local uh, Thunder Bay lawyer to become a mediator. Well, now that's eliminated now. There's no, he's got, he or she's got no advantage over me. Mm -hmm. So it might have a, it might have a negative effect on accessibility uh, in the sense that it might just favor the incumbent. Yeah. I, I like how it equals the playing field. Everyone's equal. And if you're good, you'll succeed no matter what. Um, yeah, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like when law, when law libraries went electronic, right? You know, a lawyer, a single lawyer in Kenora has the same access to information that somebody at McCarthy's does. Right. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Um, you know, can you talk about uh, some substantive developments in employment law? I mean, uh, I know you, we said it's a new area altogether, but in the past decade or so, what what has specifically changed? I know recently um, the Waxdale case, I think, and there's severance and the whole contract, whether it's valid or not. Talk about the hot topics uh, of the past few years in, in employment law, if you will. Well, the, the issue of enforceability of what I call employment standards contracts. Um, the Employment Standards Act sets a floor for uh, uh, various aspects of employment, be it hours of work uh, or uh, hourly rates uh, and termination and severance pay. Ontario's uh, laws are are more complicated 
than any other jurisdiction because we have different, we have termination pay and we have severance pay. And it, it's just, it's complicated. Um, so uh, many employers, when they draft employment contracts, wish to limit their liability to the minimums under the Employment Standards Act. I'd say it's a very, very common approach. Um, however, it is not that easy to do because there are many little quirks in the Employment Standards Act. So what the cases have talked about, Waxdale being uh, a certainly major one, but uh, Waxdale flowed from a number of other Court of Appeal decisions, was that you can, there was a case called Mactinger way back, I don't know, the 80s, the 70s maybe, well, probably about the 80s, Howard Levitt was the plaintiff's counsel in that one. And um, it stood for the proposition that you can, an employer can limit their liability to the minimum provisions of the Employment Standards Act. That was one provision. But if, it, if the provision in any way breached the act, then the whole, uh, the whole uh, termination clause was null and void. Uh, and up until that point in time, there was this debate. And I remember giving a speech to a, uh, Superior Court judges in New Brunswick about in the 80s on this as to whether or not having declared a provision in a contract illegal and therefore null and void, whether the judge could still look at it to determine what the intention of the parties was, which struck me always as bizarre. Uh, and Mactinger said, no, no, no. Once a contract provision is null and void, it's null and void. You can't look back and say, well, they really intended that he get crappy notice period. So that was the foundation of it. And then lawyers have spent the last 25 years, again, especially in Ontario, attacking termination clauses because they, just get this, because they, offend, they breached or could breach the Employment Standards Act. And they're very, very creative about it. So there are, I once started doing a list of all the ways to attack an employment contract. And in fact, I still do it. When I get one of those cases in, I don't read the plaintiff's brief or the defense brief. I read the clause myself and I try to tick off all the problem areas. And then I compare it to how many of those things the plaintiff found or the defendant, well, the defendant never finds them, he always defends them. Um, any event, so there are many, many ways, you know, did they cover benefits? Did they, did they purport to, uh, uh, there's one leading case that says, you don't look at whether it was a breach of the act at the time of termination. You look at whether it could ever be a breach of the act. And you have to have a very intricate understanding of the Employment Standards Act to understand all its little quirks. So one of the trends over the last 10 years, last five years, has been attacking uh, employment contracts and getting them thrown out. That's been a huge, that's... And then the common law applies and the common law offers more. So applies. Or, or you got weird situations. The weirdest situation is you have, um, uh, if you have a fixed term contract, most people have a contract of what's called an indefinite term. I hire you, we don't talk about termination, there is no end date. Um, either because people actually want an end date or more significantly because some corporate lawyer drafted the employment contract and they love to have beginning and ends. So they create a term, which is not really. So if you have a fixed term, say you have a two year fixed term contract, I hire you January 1st, 2020, 
two, uh, and ending December 31st, 2024, I guess. If that's all it says, and it's found to be a fixed term contract, then if I terminated you one month into the contract, I would owe you 23 months pay without any duty to mitigate the damages. So the, now employers who draft uh, fixed term contracts will don't want that to happen. So they then insert a termination clause that says, you know, this is a two year contract subject to termination on earlier, uh, earlier by virtue of paragraph 12. And then you read paragraph 12 and paragraph 12 purports to limit the person's uh, holding to uh, a severance to the Employment Standards Act. Mm -hmm. But then there's a defect in that. Mm -hmm. so, so here the employer says, well, it's a two-year contract, but I can get out of it by giving you two weeks notice with no benefits. That's the defect that you have to provide benefits. The court then finds that, that termination clause is illegal. So rather than paying the guy two weeks, they now owe him 23 months. So... So very interesting. I mean, if, if I was an employer here and you're giving me advice as an, as an employer, how do I make a contract that makes sure the Employment Standard Act is incorporated and my employee, not that I'm like this, but that my employee gets as little as possible at the end of the day? Is, is there a, a foolproof way that, that that's yes. done? Yes, there how? is. This is the way I drafted contracts 20 years ago. Never, ever limit the liability to employment standards. Just give a little bit more. Uh -huh. That's all. There's a, there's a, and trust me, I am not religious at all, but in the Torah, I understand, you know, there's things you can do and things you can't do, but the rabbis set up rules knowing that if you, it, it's like the speed limit. If you have a speed limit of hundred clicks, you know, people are going to go 110, right? You just know they are. You shouldn't go 125, but you know, you're going to go 110. So if you really don't want people to go over 110, you make the speed limit 80. That's all. So it's putting up barriers. Right. So if you, if you try to go down that line with the perfect clause, one little mistake, you're over it. If you just offer, if you just make your termination clause better than the Employment Standards Act, which is not hard because it's very cheap, then you almost guarantee success. Now, most of the cases in which the clauses have been thrown out are because the employer is trying to limit their liability to the extreme minimum. So the answer is, don't do that. Just be a little more generous than the Employment Standards Act, and and then you're covered. Very nice. Okay, all great wisdom. Good, good. Uh, most employers don't do that because because some either some corporate lawyer. I keep on maligning against corporate lawyers because that's the firm that didn't ask me back. But anyway, <laughs> uh, but uh, part of it is them. They have to have everything absolute. And, and it's, I see it so often, I'll see, a, I'll see an ESA clause, which has a defect in it, but the employer upon termination offers the employee more anyways. Well, and then the employee says, well, the clause is illegal. I don't care if you're offering them a little bit more. Now I get reasonable notice. If the same employer had simply drafted a contract providing for a somewhat more uh, I don't like the word use the word generous. Uh, a notice period in excess of of uh, the minimums, but not the common law. I mean, there's not an employer that I used to when I drafted contracts. Even if you said something as simple as you get the employment, everything you're entitled to under the Employment Standards Act plus a thousand dollars, that would be enforceable. Mm. 
Very and nice. right down and they do this, or they have a defect in their bonus plan. And one of the issues of Waxdale is, one of the key issues of Waxdale was, uh, think of it as a poison tree. If there's one branch of the, of the clause that's, that is illegal, it poisons the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So all you gotta do is find one defect or even better, find an ambiguous provision. It's kind. It it it's it's really ironic because we all know nobody would read these things, nobody even understands them when they sign them. But it's very similar to you can imagine three monks in the twelfth century arguing about how many angels spit on the end of a pin. The, the arguments over employment standards often look like that, and it's a game we play. It's they have game. implications, though many implications with uh, money oh, at the end. Of implications. What the courts are really saying is, you know or what the message is, just don't try to do an employment standards contract. Be a little more generous, who cares? Yeah, fair enough. We're almost out of time. So I have a couple of more short questions for you to sure. wrap it up. Also, it's been so informative and helpful and I appreciate all your words of wisdom. But if you look back on your impressive, successful career, do you think that there's any keys to success, anything that a younger lawyer could perhaps duplicate and follow in your footsteps in a way? Um, the two things that I did in my life uh, that got me to where I am, I think, is I got in early. I started doing employment law when it was new. It almost didn't exist. So, and same thing with mediation. I got into mediation when it was new. Uh, so it's much easier to break into an issue both when I started employment law and when I started doing mediation, I didn't have to sell myself as much as selling the process. Mm -hmm. I, my marketing in, in the early 80s as a lawyer was just informing people that they had rights, something they didn't even know about. And the same thing with mediation. When I started doing mediations, I was one of the, the first crew really to do it in employment law. So it was easier. So I know it's hard because so many areas are so full now, but it's easier to break into a new area than it is to knock your head around an old area. When I was growing, when I was a young lawyer, if you said you were a civil litigator, that meant you did personal injury. I always, that was never my choice. I didn't like medical reports. I didn't really care whether someone was on the left side of the road or the right hand side of the road. And I also knew that I'd be carrying somebody's bag for the next 20 years and I'm not a good bag carrier. So try to find an area that, try to find a niche, okay, which isn't always easy, so. To paraphrase is uh, have the courage to take on a new area, a new challenge. Yeah, you know, I mean, 10 years ago, there was no such thing as privacy law, and now there's privacy lawyers. There was, you could be a cyber, I don't know what half these specialties are anymore, you know, cyber lawyer or something like that. So that, that's probably the best way. So you get in on the ground floor, and then five years later, you're an expert because you know more than anybody else because nobody else is doing it. You know, breaking into an established area is way more difficult. Right. Okay, and I guess as a, a last kind of question is a general advice for young lawyers, law students. Uh, it could be general advice or specific advice, could be reading suggestions, could be uh, anything that comes to mind. What, uh, what are the last words you wanna leave the younger generation with? Well, this is more for the law schools, okay? Okay. You're teaching us wrong, okay? <laughs> 
when what I was about to the, law, the students now talk to the law students. It's really the props. It's the people who designed the courses. I was a B plus student all my life. Okay. Um, the difference between a B student and an A student was the A student caught more of the issues. Remember that one? Issue yeah. catching. So uh, we train lawyers to look for every possible argument, every possible dispute and throw it on the table. So what happens is the A student gets the good job and he's the one or she's the one who thinks up, oh, it's just not a notice case, there's punitive damages, there's aggravated, there's mental distress. The whole, the C student just looks at it and says, oh, it's a notice case. All right, well, just, oh, what's all this other stuff? I didn't spot all these issues. I didn't get a good mark. Most of what the A student pounds is garbage because they miss the forest, what is it, forest for the trees, you're missing whatever. So we should be teaching law students the essence of certainly litigation. I'm not talking about commercial or something. The essence of litigation is your client is in a dispute. What is the best way of resolving that dispute? Not your clients in the dispute. Think up every stupid little legal argument you possibly can throw it into the mix. Oh, and by the way, threaten the other side with immense outcomes. We believe litigation is based on the premise that I'm gonna threaten you with extinction and you're gonna give in. When you're on the other side, it's like, you're threatening me, up you, and I threaten you back. This does not lead to dispute resolution. So that's my major message, like think, the client wants the dispute resolved. Any client who says, I want to go to court on this is probably an idiot and he's never been to court. They want a resolution. Mm -hmm. Compromise is not a bad word, okay? So yeah. your client wants to resolve the dispute and he or she is looking to you to help them resolve the dispute. Now, full gun litigation may be the best way, but probably not. And uh, bring a dose of psychology to understand the underlying issues. Yes, understand the way. And, and that's, you know, part of that is training. Part of that is empathy, sympathy, EQ, whatever you call it. Um, and that's harder when you're younger. Maybe, maybe not, actually. I take that back sometimes, the older people who work at it. You know, yeah, it's putting people in shoes, understanding what motivates people. You know, the lawyer says, I'm happy to go to court. Yeah, well, your client may not be, you know. The, the, one of the nicest, the two nicest things I hear at, at the end of a mediation are the lawyer will say, thank you very much. I never thought it would resolve. That makes me feel good. And then one of the lines I use on, on employee, uh, not on either litigants, as a matter of resolve. If, say you're close to, I make this comment about, um, 90%, I do a three hour mediation and I charge $2,600. Uh, and I say, for the first two hours, for the first two and a half hours, I charge you $600. I charge you $2,000 for the last 30 minutes. It's all about closing the deal. Mm -hmm. So one of the closing techniques I use, if I'm, if I'm close, I'll say to the plaintiff, um, usually plaintiff, did you sleep last night? No. How would you like to sleep tonight? Yeah, give up a thousand bucks and you can sleep tonight. Understanding that it's the client's problem, not your problem.
that that's the key. And I rem I have three sons who are lawyers, and I'm constantly telling them that too. Daddy, what should I do? This like I don't know. Give the client advice. It's the client's call. It's not your call. It's not your case. Okay. There are many reasons people will settle for more than they should have paid or less than they should have received. Right. And be conscious of that. So. Okay. Beautiful. Last question uh, before I let you go is. Are there any hopes for the future? Employment law, being a lawyer in general, any sort of changes you want to see or you may be happy with the way things are? I would love to be employment law dictator for a day. <laughs> okay. I would rewrite a lot of, a lot of what we do is silly and stupid. And there are, I think, simple solutions. Um, I don't see them happening. Maybe you should uh, become a judge and then you can make it all happen. Too old for that. I, wouldn't, I couldn't have the patience to do it and whatever. It's, 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 it's unfortunate. It's just, I go back to the notice period. It is absolutely ridiculous that we keep on relitigating something. Short service cases are the hardest. People with less than say three years service, the notice, the ability to predict the notice period is almost off the map. Could be three months, could be 12 months. Like, would you hire a plumber to come into your house? And when you say, how much is it gonna cost to fix the toilet? I don't know, let me fix it first and I'll give you a bill for either 300 or a thousand bucks, depending on how I feel at the end of the, of the day. It's ridiculous. And as we go, people, young people today are not going to be employees for 25 years. This is not gonna happen anymore. Companies are, don't last 25 years anymore. So. I don't know statistically what it is, but I suspect among people under 40, the average period of time they spend in a job is probably less than five years. So that means the, the highest number of terminations are going to be short service cases. And they're the worst predictors. And that's just not fair to anyone. Yeah. And well, I, been, yeah, hopefully they get some clarity in that area. I don't see it happening. I just don't. I just for various reasons. I just, there's no reason to believe it'll get easier in the future than it was in the past. And courts think up and, and, and legislatures think up new employee rights all the time, which is fine generally, but they often don't understand how it plays out in the real world. Um, so they pass a statute that sounds wonderful and beautiful. And then in the real world, it's a disaster, it's abused, it's used by both sides, contrary to what their intentions are. And it creates more litigation and I get to keep on working. Yeah, so. it keeps uh, lawyers and mediators busy, at least that. Keeps lawyers and mediators busy. That's, that's the one attribute I suppose I can say. So yes, I would love to be dictator, employment dictator for a day, but uh, maybe two days. We'll see what we can do to get you there. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> Barry, it's really been enlightening and informative, educational. Uh, you've opened a lot of uh, windows into employment law for myself, the listeners. Um, I look forward to staying in touch with you. Okay.